Hi, this is Stephen Ballantyne with the Clean Air Action Fund. First off, the Clean Air Action Fund is a 501c4 environmental organization focused on fighting climate change and its impacts on Pennsylvania. The Action Fund engages in lobbying and electoral work to advocate for candidates and policies to address the climate crisis and to hold elected officials accountable. Today, we're really excited to have Audrey Shulman here with us to discuss her work and how it can address Philadelphia's aging, polluting, and expensive gas infrastructure. Audrey Shulman co-founded HEAT and has led the organization since its start in 2008. And together with her co-executive director, Zainab Mugabe, she has developed HEAT's innovative thermal network solution to decarbonizing gas heating and is guiding its adoption in Massachusetts and other states. Welcome to the podcast, Audrey. We're really excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to talk about thermal networks and introduce more people to the work that you're doing. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the problem that thermal networks are trying to solve. Can you talk a little bit about the state of gas distribution infrastructure generally and in Philadelphia specifically? Yes. Yeah, so a lot of our gas distribution system, meaning the pipes underneath our streets and the affiliated infrastructure is aging and leak prone. And that's a problem not only because of safety. I think we all have had experiences in the cities that we live in of some gas safety difficulties, but also it's a problem because all of us ratepayers, all of us customers, actually pay for the lost gas. And that gas kills trees by the roots by suffocating the tree through the roots. Actually, trees need oxygen to breathe, which is sort of fascinating. And then finally, it also is a huge greenhouse gas emissions problem because natural gas is overwhelmingly methane and methane is an extraordinarily potent greenhouse gas, dozens of times more powerful if leaked out uncombusted, unburnt than CO2, which we all know carbon dioxide is a problem. This is that problem on steroids. Yeah, the leaks seem like a very big problem with the gas infrastructure. And how do we fix the leaks and replace the pipes? And what does that look like? And what kind of problems arise out of doing that work? You know, first off, fixing the leaks is always a good idea. I always think of it as if my kids were going off to college next year, say, and I had a, an old minivan. I would not replace the minivan at that point. <laughs> I would instead repair it so that it can last another year. And then after that, I can manage to get the car that I really want, which given me would be, of course, an electric car. But we, we should repair. We should keep the, the system safe and reduce the waste and reduce the emissions uh, and you know keep our trees healthy. And at the same time, when we do have to replace the infrastructure, because a lot of it, as I said before, is incredibly old. And because it is so old, it is leaking and unsafe and hurts trees. And we all end up paying for that wasted gas. We should replace it with what we want for this next century. The gas infrastructure, for instance, in the Boston area, where I come from, there's one gas pipe that dates back to when President Lincoln was in office. That was cutting edge in the 1800s. Let's move towards something that's cutting edge now. I definitely don't think we should be using technology of the time of Abraham Lincoln, especially these days. So if we are going to replace these pipes because of these leaks, how long would it take and how much would it cost to replace the, the pipes that we have carrying gas underneath the streets of Philadelphia and other cities in, in America? 
Well, so luckily, in a strange way, luckily in Philadelphia, approximately 40% of your gas infrastructure is cast iron, dating back to over 100 years ago. And so all of that is infrastructure that, uh, you know, PGW, Philadelphia Gas Works, is planning to replace. So instead of replacing it with brand new fossil fuel infrastructure, that again is a system that's, that's very antiquated in terms of the idea of it, the technology of it, let's move to something that we really want for the next 200 years. Yeah. Because if we spend decades, you know, replacing current cast iron pipes with more pipes to carry gas, those are pipes that are eventually just going to be stranded assets when we stop burning gas for heat, right? You know, all utilities, what they basically do is they pay for extraordinarily expensive infrastructure that we all need, like water, electricity, gas, or heating. And they have us, all of us customers, pay for it over decades, and that way it erases the upfront cost for all of us so that we can, no matter if we're wealthy or not, whether we have a backyard where we could put a water well in or not, we can all access water, electricity, gas, etc. That is an amazing system. But the problem with that is if you want to change the system, it takes a long time. If you imagine a cruise ship as a gas utility, you're steering for a point that's 50 years ahead of you. Because that's how long they amortize the system over. And so that means that if you want to change the infrastructure, you have to think 50 years ahead. That means that if, if we replace these pipes with more pipes that are meant to carry gas, we're going to be paying for those pipes for 50 years, even though right. we're not going to be using them, hopefully, for anywhere near 50 years. Right. So your children and your grandchildren will be paying for an infrastructure that they never get to use. That sounds crazy. Yeah. So those are obviously big problems with continuing business as usual for gas distribution. Uh, but with big bureaucracies like utilities and governments, there can be some inertia or, or risk aversion when it comes to big changes. Yes. That's what you want in a gas utility, right? Yeah. <laughs> you want somebody who's utterly risk adverse. Totally. But luckily, uh, gas utilities have innovated a lot. And Philadelphia is one of the first places that gas systems were innovated, and I'll, I'll just say this as a fun extra detail, that when the system was created back during the Civil War, afterwards they had a lot of you know Civil War rifles left over. So that's one of the ways they made the pipes is out of the barrels, basically recycled, you know, guns, <laughs> rifles. That's incredible. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I've, I've always found that fascinating. Philadelphia is one of the first places people used gas, and it is the perfect site to innovate for the next technology because gas has worked really well for a long period of time. But I think it's, it's partly this is the time to begin to switch, not only because of, of climate change and the other reasons that I've mentioned, but also because right now air source heat pumps are becoming an increasingly good competitor. They are becoming more and more efficient. The price of, of buying them is lower. The ways of installing them are easier. They can provide heating and cooling. And at some point, when they become utterly price competitive with gas, you're going to have a lot of people, you know, as they already are, switching to air source heat pumps. And then those people who switch are going to be those who have the money, the means and the money to do so. And so you're going to leave a lower and lower income level 
of people on the gas system paying for that same fixed cost of those 3,000 miles of gas main that you have underneath Philadelphia. And that means low-income people and renters will be the last people on the gas system paying extraordinarily high energy bills. That's such an important point. And that's what people call the gas utility death spiral, right? Yeah. A lot of the time people think, you know, we can't keep burning gas because eventually it's going to be a problem for climate change. We need to fight climate change. But also the gas utility model is not sustainable in the sense that there's new technology that's just going to make it obsolete. And if we don't think ahead in the way that you're talking about 40, 50 years, then we're just going to slowly have people who are wealthy who can afford to make the switch to modern heat pump technology make that switch. And then, you know, poorer ratepayers are going to be left paying the entire cost of a gas distribution infrastructure in, in cities like Philadelphia. Yeah. The Germans call it the last grandmother problem, <laughs> that there's just one last grandma huddled in her house paying for the entire gas system because she can't afford to get off. That's an especially important problem in Philadelphia where it's one of the poorest big cities in the country. It's one of the most energy burdened big cities in the country. So the last grandma problem seems especially problematic here. I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the problems with staying the course here with, with gas distribution and why Philadelphia is unique. Uh, a lot of cities around the country are facing this same problem, but Philadelphia is a bit different because the city itself owns PGW, which is Philadelphia's gas utility. And you know this, but I'm going to say it for our listeners, which is it's the largest municipally owned gas utility in the country with over 500,000 customers and 1,500 employees. So the city isn't just looking at the bottom line in the way a private company might. It's also looking at the broader public interest, like impact on ratepayers, impact on workers, impact on the environment. So you've already touched on these things a little bit, but I just want to return to what's the impact on ratepayers specifically of, of just staying the course and, and sticking with natural gas distribution infrastructure as we have it now? If you look 50 years ahead, I cannot imagine that there would still be, what is it, 500,000 customers on the gas system. It will be much, much lower than that. So let's be optimistic and say there's 20,000 at that point. They will still be paying those same costs. And they will also be paying for the 40% of the cast iron mains under the city streets having been replaced with brand new gas infrastructure. So they are going to be paying for all this replacement plus just maintaining safely that system, which, as you know, in Philadelphia, given the fact that there have been some safety incidences, it's hard. So PGW will probably have to, you know, cut back on gas workers, given the fact that there will not be so many customers, ratepayers. So it's going to be, no matter how PGW wants it to be, it might be less safe. That's just not a way we want to head. Instead, let's use this opportunity to move towards a system that gas workers can still work on, that will result in a lower energy bill, increase safety, and that will allow PGW to continue to be on that innovative front that it always has been. That makes a lot of sense to me. And while we're talking about this, what about the climate and air quality impacts of sticking with gas distribution, because the city of Philadelphia has committed to being carbon neutral by 2050. How can Philadelphia and other cities possibly meet those climate goals while still heating buildings with fossil gas? Um, so I don't believe it can. Uh, you know, if there's more than 3% of the gas leaked out unburned, it is, as I said before, released as methane, which because it's so potent, 
as a greenhouse gas. It makes gas worse than coal. So we must get off of gas. There is no question about that, not only because of climate, but also because the business will not be there in the future. It cannot economically compete soon with air source heat pumps, given their increasing efficiency. So we need a system that can deliver heating and potentially cooling, because we need that increasingly. And it needs to be able to be installed, owned, and operated by gas utilities and gas workers. And so that's part of the reason we came up with networked geothermal. And that's a great segue into network geothermal, but I'm going to ask one more question before we get there. I want to quickly touch on alternatives to replacing our gas distribution infrastructure. Besides network geothermal, are there any other solutions that can protect ratepayers, workers, and the environment? We're going to need every system, every way we possibly can, to reduce our emissions and do so in a cost-effective and safe way. And the, the network geothermal system is just one system, but I think it's particularly pertinent to urban and low-income cities like Philadelphia. I think it's time. I've put it off long enough. Let's talk about network geothermal. What are thermal networks or network geothermal, and why are they called that? Networked geothermal, and I'll use that term, even though it is a big clunky mouthful, basically would mirror the gas infrastructure in the street, where you'd have a, a pipe going up and down the street, filled with just plain water that's at ambient temperature, somewhere between, you know, 40 to 90 degrees, with service loops going to each building. And inside of each building, you'd have a heat pump, and a heat pump is basically the same as the technology in your fridge, except for it can run forward or backward. So it can pump heat into your home or out of your home, thereby providing both heating and cooling. And it does it not by combustion, where you're creating through chemical energy, you're creating heat, but instead by moving naturally occurring temperatures. So it's so much more efficient. An air source heat pump is two to three times more efficient than even the most efficient gas boiler or furnace. Because a gas boiler, you can only get up to 100% of that burned gas to be energy transferred into your home for heat. Yeah, I mean, and some, some of that heat's always going to go up the chimney, right? Always. Exactly. <laughs> so you're going to lose some. But then with heat pumps, you're able to take heat or cool from the air or water and transfer it into the home. So instead of creating heating and cooling, you're, you're moving it from outside of your home inside of your home. Right, exactly. So you can be several times more efficient than burning gas for heat. Yeah, basically inside of it is a refrigerant. What it basically acts as is a sponge for heat. So when it expands, it absorbs the heat. And when you compress it, you can wring out the heat. So you can sponge up the heat outside, bring it inside, wring it out to get the heat into your home. And it would distribute it through whatever distribution system you have, such as forced hot air, right, through ducts. And the infrastructure would be where the gas infrastructure normally is, in the right-of-way of the street. And there'd be boreholes attached that would be 500 feet deep or less, right, which might seem deep, but... These are just six inch wide pipes. It's laparoscopic and in terms of geothermal, it is extraordinarily shallow. Those would be used to bring the temperature of the water in the pipes back to a temperature that keeps heat pumps happy. They work most effectively and efficiently. They are pulling temperature off of something that's in that 40 to 90 degree temperature window. And that way you have heat pumps working constantly efficiently 
delivering the temperature to lots of different buildings. And each of the buildings, instead of wasting their excess thermal energy, it gets shed back into that system to be reused by the next customers down the street. So for instance, an ice rink, it will be pulling cold off the system all the way through the year and providing heating to approximately, I think it's 50 homes, enough for the entire year. So that way you're not wasting energy anymore and we're all getting by using less energy, but providing both heating and cooling in a safer and lower cost way. There are so many exciting things in what you just said. I'm going to start with the efficiency gains of, of network geothermal. Like that's the part that really blows me away. It's a little bit hard to understand, but I think when you wrap your mind around it, you see how incredible it is. Yeah. You know, for instance, office buildings tend to use a lot more cooling than they use heating. So every office building could be pulling cold off the system and returning that water hotter. So that heated water could then provide heat for the homes that need that heating. And so what you're doing is balancing the temperature over time and space. You can also store the temperature in the ground. For instance, the heat of the summer in the ground for the winter when you need it. I, I just find that so cool. Because of that increased efficiency that you get from the network aspect of network geothermal, how efficient is it and how does it compare to other forms of heating and cooling when it comes to efficiency? It's called the coefficient of performance, which is a way of looking at efficiency. So a gas boiler has a coefficient of performance. If it's a, the best gas boiler ever right now, sealed combustion, etc., it's about 0.97, so it's under one. An air source heat pump will have a coefficient of performance, a COP, of somewhere between two and three. A single building installation of a ground source heat pump system would have a COP of about five approximately. And that's because the ground is always that same temperature of about, you know, 50, 55 degrees. So that keeps the heat pumps happy and working efficiently. And then you network those ground source heat pumps together. And because of that load cancellation of the ice rink versus the homes, <laughs> the office building versus the homes, you get a COP of somewhere between six and eight. And we're currently working on a case study of Colorado Mesa University where it has a networked ground source heat pump system that was installed, I think, over 12 years ago. And we will be showing that COP as well as just the simple cost savings of the system. I just want to stop for a second and, and just highlight the fact that a COP of between six and eight is amazing. And does that make it the most efficient technology in the world, as far as we know, for heating and cooling? That I know of, yeah. That's incredible. You already touched on this a little bit, but I, I just want to make sure that people understand for folks who aren't as well versed in the heat pump world and how homes are heated and cooled using heat pumps. In some cases, people may have a ground source heat pump for their home. They'll have one ground loop that runs outside of their home, and they'll use that with a ground source heat pump to heat and cool their home. But with thermal networks, there wouldn't just be one loop for a house. Everyone in a whole network would share their loops, right? They would just share this underground network of water. Yes. I think you mentioned this, but just to highlight it, how would it actually work for people to draw from that network and use it to heat and cool their house? Like, what would that look like for an individual consumer or ratepayer? 
wherever your you know boiler or furnace or whatever your mechanical is instead of that you would have a heat pump so you know depending on your home like of course if you have steam heat uh, you're going to need a major retrofit <laughs> but for most other people the only thing that would happen is there would be the mechanical would be switched out you might have to add insulation every home will be different and uh, you would get heating delivered if you had an ability in your distribution system to also take cooling. So in other words, if you had ducts, you'd be able to get cooling also, which we're going to need more and more of, right, given the temperature of the summers changing. And in terms of the other thing that people most care about, which is energy bills, we've had three different economic analysis run that show that if installed by a gas utility and rate-based or, you know, paid for in that way that I mentioned before over the lifetime of the infrastructure and across all customers, the energy bills will actually be lower than with gas. It's also the most efficient method of cooling. Again, I keep saying this, but that's amazing. So if you replace whatever your heating source is, presumably some kind of gas boiler, and you replace your whatever your AC system is with a single ground source heat pump that would draw off this thermal network, that would be cheaper for ratepayers. Yes. Just to be clear, you're not installing the boreholes or anything like that. All you're doing is taking care of the stuff in your home. In Massachusetts, there's a bill called the Future of Heat that would allow for gas utilities to own the mechanical, also install, own, and operate it, so that then... First off, that solves the problem of the upfront cost for the customers and allows it to be a much more just transition because then everybody on the street can afford it. But also, it makes sure that the system then is not oversized because a lot of heat pump installers are still concerned about if heat pumps can work because they don't have that much experience with them yet. And so they do tend to oversize it so that they will not get callbacks. Part of the problem that we talk about with this gas utility death spiral is that more well-off people are able to buy these air source heat pumps, which are more efficient, greener, provide heating and cooling, but poorer ratepayers can't afford to do it. But if the utility is going to be purchasing the heat pump itself and installing the network geothermal system, then it can reach everybody at a more affordable price than they're paying for their current systems. Yep, exactly. And that's what we need. We need a method right now to transition. And It's happened before. For instance, when we shifted from what was known as uh, coal gas or town gas, which was made from coal being gasified, to what's called natural gas now, gas that's mined, big bubbles of methane under the ground that's mined, the chemistry was slightly different. So every regulator and every appliance had to be shifted out to have that done. And for instance, in New York City, in just three short years, They replaced over 4 million regulators in all the appliances across New York City. And that was the gas utility doing it. And that sort of gives you an example of what gas utilities possibly can do when their business is on the line. And that's what we need at this moment. It's important to remember that we can make big changes and that we're capable of big transformations, especially right now, and that we have the tools to do it. One more question about what network geothermal would look like. Do you see it as a good fit for the city of Philadelphia? Yes. (laughs) And why why is that? Well, first off, I looked briskly at a hydrogeological survey for Philadelphia. And if I remember correctly, I think it was the northwestern part of Philadelphia is just ideal 
for this, but also because you have that 40% of the infrastructure that needs to be switched out. That means this is a great system for you to go to. And you've got the river right near you, <laughs> where you can also pull off temperature or simply get rid of temperature. So for all sorts of reasons, Philadelphia is a great, great place to install this. That's so exciting to hear. I just want to quickly run through a couple of things. And, and these are things that you touched on, but I just want to emphasize them. What would a transition to network geothermal look like for the workforce who's currently working at PGW or another gas utility? How would that work for them? Is it a similar skill set? Would you be able to keep the same workforce? What do you think about that? So the workers who operate and maintain the system, who are generally the ones who work for the gas utility, they are already certified to do this work. The only difference with the pipes is it's got a different colored stripe on the side because it contains water instead of gas. So those pipes just need to be, you know, when installed, but fused in the same way that gas workers do it now. In terms of the installation, there's differences in terms of the drilling of the boreholes would have to be done by somebody else probably. But in general, at least here in Massachusetts, the gas workers do not do the installation, but instead contractors do. So I believe that in the case of PGW gas workers, they would all already be certified. And what's really nice is then they would be working with a system where it is not an explosive gas, but it is simple water. And I know that gas workers worry at times uh, about the safety a lot. So, you know, not only of themselves, but the people around them. It certainly sounds a lot safer to transport water underground in pipes than a, a flammable explosive gas that can cause harm when you breathe it in or causes harm when it's burned. Yes, absolutely. And I certainly would not want to be in, a, in some of those pits where gas workers are working with an explosive fuel. I know that that causes great worry for for many people. And so they would be able to continue their jobs and be able to move into the renewable economy uh, and it would be safer for them and they'd still be able to take care of their families, which is why many of them have been fighting in some ways renewable energy. At least here in Massachusetts, I've talked with gas workers and they say that renewable energy in general pays one third per hour that gas work does and it doesn't have the same benefits. So for their families, they must fight against renewable energy. And in this case, there is not that problem. That's so important to be able to bring together coalitions of people who can get on the same page and, and work together towards this energy transition. That covers the workforce. What about the utilities themselves? How does this work for them? Is this a good deal for them as compared to just continuing on this? What we've already said is a pretty much a doomed enterprise of trying to provide people gas for heating over the course of the next few decades. How, how will this look for them? So I think it looks pretty good for them. They get to once again innovate to deliver an energy at a lower cost way that's safer. And they get to be you know, fiscally responsible and uh, move into this new century. And they don't have to worry as much about stranded assets. There would have to be, of course, legislative and regulatory changes. I don't know as much about what's exactly required in Philadelphia, but in most states, gas utilities can only sell gas. And so they would have to be allowed to sell thermal energy as well. And luckily, New York uh, just passed a law 
allowing gas utilities to transition to thermal utilities, as well as other utilities. I mean, other utilities could do it also, not that gas utilities can become, say, electric mm-hmm. utilities. <laughs> so we do have an example of a state already moving toward that. They would also have to do a variety of potentially other regulatory changes, such as being able to install thermal infrastructure, and maybe, if it's considered the best way in Philadelphia, installing, owning, and operating the heat pumps in the homes and businesses so that it could be a more just transition. So in some ways, it's a growth opportunity for these utilities that can now provide heating and cooling. They can get into other areas of providing service. Yeah, in a lot of towns out in western Massachusetts or in more rural areas, you can't get a new gas pipe to the area, right? Because nobody wants it going through their backyard. But in this case, because this system is a closed loop system, right? You only have to fill it up with water once. It's basically just a giant radiator running around town. You don't have that problem with NIMBYs, with not in my backyard. And it's just a water pipe. So gas utilities uh, can now move into a lot more areas to be able to supply both heating and cooling. And that means that they get more constant revenue through the year instead of just their sales cycle being in the winter. They now have a consistent sales cycle throughout the year. The more I learn about thermal networks, the more there is to like. I feel like I just keep learning more and more exciting things about them. This may seem kind of obvious, but what's the effect on climate and air quality, not just because it's more efficient, but also because it can be powered with green energy, right? Yes. So it would improve. Clearly, you'd reduce the gas leaks, you know, as you get off of gas, right? So the gas leaks would go away. And that's a huge emissions problem. Secondly, because we wouldn't have combustion in the homes, our indoor air quality would be better. And for instance, gas stoves, if you have a gas stove in the house, your children have a 24% chance, increased chance of getting asthma. Gas stoves are not good for us, but we, we use them. And that goes for all the gas appliances. So indoor and outdoor, our air quality would be better. We'd be safer. I love the lower energy costs, <laughs> et cetera, you know, and we'd be fighting climate change. Yep, absolutely. Finally, to start wrapping things up, I want to talk about what it looks like and what it has looked like putting thermal networks into practice. Are there any prominent examples you can think of of existing thermal networks? Yeah, so there's a variety in different college campuses like Colorado Mesa University, Weber State, et cetera. Colleges are leading on this. But here in Massachusetts, Eversource Gas has already been approved to install a networked geothermal system. It's going in in the city of Framingham. It'll be a variety of schools, a firehouse, some elderly housing, and an army uh, set of buildings. So that's starting to be installed this fall. And then National Grid, which is the other major utility here in Massachusetts, is approved to install four other ones. And they will be trying to aim for areas that have low to moderate income customers, areas where otherwise they would have to put a lot of money into the gas infrastructure because there's either gas constraints or leak-prone infrastructure. And for the buildings connected, National Grid Gas will be taking all the gas appliances out of the home or you know business and replacing them with electric appliances. So this is a gas utility modeling electrification. It's really quite stunning. And I'll give one other story, which is that whenever Source Gas went out into Framingham to find homes who might want to be connected to the system, 
a geothermal installer gave them a two-hour training session. So these were gas salesmen being trained in geo. And those gas salesmen went out into the neighborhood and had the best sales day of their lives. Uh, I think in two days, they had more people than they could possibly connect. And so this is a system people want. It's a system that gas utilities can install. And it's a system that we all desperately need to move toward if we want to you know, continue to maintain a stable climate for our children and our grandchildren and not hand down stranded assets. In some ways, it's surprising to hear about gas utilities getting on board of a system where they don't provide gas. But in other ways, you know, it makes sense that they're having such good sales when the more I hear about it, the more there is to like about network geothermal. When you hear the pitch, it's like, yeah, like sign me up. So what's been your experience working with gas utilities and how has it been trying to get them to, to participate in this since it is a bit of a pivot for them? So I feel like gas utilities are, they're filled with a lot of different people, <laughs> some of whom immediately get the concept and want this opportunity and others who for clear and obvious reasons that are utterly understandable don't understand heat pumps and are resistant and worried and concerned. And that makes perfect sense. But the more we de-risk this system for gas utilities, for regulators, for the public, the more we show that it can work, that it can produce the, the heating and cooling we need with all the other benefits I've named, then the more we can move toward this at the speed that we need to be able to transition not only our heating and cooling system, but also it'll help us transition our electric grid too. Because of that incredible efficiency that I mentioned with this system, it radically reduces the electric peaks on the electric grid, allowing us to move forward faster towards electrification and using electricity that is produced from renewables and storage rather than from fossil fuels, which we will not be able to use much longer because of all of the city mandates, the state mandates, et cetera, that are happening around the country. That's a great segue to my last question. You know, you said it's good for the grid. It's good for ratepayers. It's good for workers. It's good for utilities. It's good for the climate. It's good for air quality. It seems like it's a win, 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 win for everybody. What am I missing? It seems a little too good to be true. Um, it, is it? It's going to be a lot of work, right? <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a huge amount of work, which in a way is great because then we can utilize a huge workforce and help get a lot of people good jobs. But it will mean a lot of work. And for instance, on my street last year, they replaced all the gas infrastructure with new gas infrastructure. And I would rather have them install it with something that I know that I will be able to use, my kids will be able to use, my grandkids will be able to use then have them install something that I worry that my kids and grandkids will just have to pay for. On that note, thank you so much for joining us, Audrey. It's been really exciting to hear you talk about network geothermal, and we're really excited to see about where this can go for Philadelphia. So thanks again for your time and for all of your knowledge and advocacy around this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for tuning in to Clean Air Action Fund's podcast. For more information on network geothermal, please visit heat.org. That's H-E-E-T dot O-R-G. If you like what you heard, 
please consider supporting Clean Air Action Fund by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. To learn more about Clean Air Action Fund, visit cleanairactionfund.org and follow us on social media at Clean Air Action on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 